Hey, everybody, how are we all doing? I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. I meant to get on earlier, but I couldn't. I've been having some Wi-Fi problems, and holy shish kebab, it was a nightmare. All right, we are here at the Sunday evening firesides with the backyard professor. Hopefully you guys are going to have a, a pleasant evening tonight. I have some really interesting information to share with you. Hey, how you doing? Come on into the chat. It's over here on the side. Go down and you can enter into the chat. All right, how is everybody doing tonight? It's been a beautiful sunny day here and it gave me a chance to do some really good, excellent research, and some jobbing down of some notes, which I have done extensively, and I've got some information that I think is pertinent. It's going to be my view and my approach to this subject of the relationship of the Joseph Smith papyri and the Kinderhook plates. Now, we've seen that the Kinderhook plates were talked about last Wednesday on Mormonism Live with Bill Reel and Radio Free Mormon. I've got to see who this is. I have a feeling. Oh, RFM just told me tomorrow is Aaronic Priesthood Restoration Day, so that's very important. How y'all doing? Welcome. I can't see any of you in chat. I wonder what's going on. Boy, I hope the chat's going to show tonight. Uh-oh. I'm goofing up the chat. I can't see the chat. Sorry. Oh, I wish I could. I'm two minutes into this, and I've already messed up the chat. <laughs> oh, that's the way that goes. That's typical. If I start messing around with things, it's going to close me off. I don't want it to, so I'm not going to mess with anything. Okay, YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, no way. I'm not going to touch that. Okay, I'm not going to be able to see the chat tonight. I apologize if I don't say hi or interact with you. It's because I can't see the chat. Hopefully this will record it. I'd like to see what's going on. I wonder why the chat's not live. Anybody want to call me and tell me how to do this? You can. Expand menu. Man, if I do that, I'm afraid it'll goof me up. Okay. A lot of information to share with you tonight. I'm going to go ahead and just record this, and uh, we'll get on with the agenda. So, this last Wednesday, we saw the discussion with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Reel on the Kinderhook plates and the significance of Don Bradley's excellent materials on that. And that got me to thinking... Uh, you know, I have done almost, I think I've done 18 podcasts, 18 live sessions now on the Joseph Smith papyri, getting clear on the Joseph Smith papyri, which is so important to do, which means understanding the relationships of all the different documents. Remember, we have four folders. The the 
valuable discovery, which Joseph Smith himself signed, right? The alphabet. Then you have the bound grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. And then we have the translation manuscripts of the book of Abraham. So a little complexity, but nothing too major. So we understand all about the papyri and uh, there's a live chest button in the middle. We press to see the comments. I don't see that. Top or bottom of the screen? Doug Vincent's trying to tell me to open the chat. I'm trying to figure out how. I don't see it. Am I going to push the edit button? Oh, man. Is this send feedback? No, I don't want to send feedback. Manage? No. Well, I don't know if I want to manage or not. Bottom. It's at the bottom. That's the microphone. I see a back arrow. I see an end stream. Ooh, is it the edit button? It's not going to be the edit button. I don't see any. I don't see anything on here at all, Doug. Nothing whatsoever. Dad, gummit. Open to the session on your phone. <laughs> I'm showing off my ignorance. Do 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 hold on I'll be right with you I don't have YouTube on yes I do I've gotta have YouTube on my phone come on where is it where are you YouTube come on backyard professor live YouTube I'll be right with you. I promise. Oh, there. We, oh, that's the special live. Add results from the web. 17, 19 watching. There we go. Oh, I see. In the face of an unstable world and rising uncertainty. Look at it. They've already got an ad on my YouTube and I'm supposed to be live. I'm supposed to be live. Oh, there I am. Oh, okay. Okay, so... All right, there we go. Okay, here you go. Oh, you guys are smart. Oh, all of you are here. Okay, I'm going. <laughs> Sorry, you know, my skills in electronics really suck. Seven minutes of goofiness. All right, excellent. Morning to y'all. Ruth Smart, Lamb Chop, Doug, Vincent, Teresa Pittman. All of you. I hope it records on this session. That's going to suck if it doesn't. I don't know why it's so dark. Oh, well. Okay. Tim Rathbone. Uh-oh. Is it echoing? Paul Osborne. I'm going to hold this aside. I, I, I will talk later with you on the chat. Is there any more echo? Hopefully there's no more echo. Let me know. Sound is fine. Okay, thank you. Man, I'm telling you, it sucks to be handicapped. 
on electronics. <laughs> hey, I had a lot of fun on Mormon stories. I really did. Uh, that was a ball to do. I saw a lot of you there. I appreciate your support. It was fun. That was basically the best wrap-up on the papyri that I could have possibly given. I had tremendous help from Gerardo, right? So here's my idea tonight. I want to share two prongs with you. It's like we've been studying the papyri for an entire semester. I've given you 18 videos hour and a half to two hour long videos, right? So, I mean, seriously, um, that's pretty good. That's not bad. And so, are you guys still here? And so, uh, I'm thinking it's perhaps time to move on to another subject, but I want to put a conclusion a valid conclusion on to the study of the Joseph Smith papyri. Now, of course, I haven't exhausted it. There are lots and lots of apologetic arguments to get to. There are a lot and lot of rebuttals to apologetic arguments to get to, etc. And I will do those in time. But what I wanted to do basically is let's get clear on this subject. And now that we're somewhat clear, I want to give it a good conclusion, the kind of the capstone of the arch. And I was talking to RFM about it and he agreed. He said, that is a great idea, truly. So uh, we have noticed that when the apologists uh, speak on this subject, when they approach the uh, idea of the implications of some of what Joseph Smith said, maybe something Oliver Cowdery said, right? Maybe there was a, a declared revelation on a completely separate subject that ties in with this subject. Information on the papyri, new Egyptological translations and ideas, uh, new thesis being written on either books of the dead or books of breathings, new conferences, etc. All of this information upgrades us, updates us. But I wanted to give you a really solid foundation. Hey, Patty Cake. Thank you, T.O. I appreciate it. Thank you, Teresa Pittman. That was fun. Warmest Stories was epic. 8,400 views. Wow, that's astonishing, huh? No, no, you didn't fail the class, but I will give more classes anyway. Uh, okay, here's my idea. I find two now. <laughs> I find two really important conclusions that the apologists refuse to come to. Now, this is interesting because they, I believe in some instances, they know what the conclusions will be, but they refuse to go that far. And my first one, of course, and I, and I gave an entire video on this, but let's realistically just briefly recap this sincerely. The theme is biblical provenance of the papyri. 
man, that just can't work. There is no one in their right mind or scholarship who accepts, and I mean within Mormonism, nobody accepts the overarching, the total, the grand poopaw picture of the incredible amount of biblical provenance that was given to the papyri. And I mean, and yes, I've got all the witnesses lined out. Um, and so uh, there were discussions of the signature of Abraham, the signature of Moses. There were actually lines written by Aaron, some of the witnesses were told. Um, the mummies had to do with the daughter of Pharaoh who pulled Moses out of the sea things like that, the biblical provenance, the, the great amount of information that was good for Christianity, Jesus sitting on his throne, Jacob's ladder, Jacob with his two wives, the 12 tribes, the return of the 10 tribes, Abraham and Joseph. I mean, it just, it seemed that that was the only concept Joseph Smith had, well, the restoration of the patriarchal priesthood, tying in back to the Garden of Eden, like the alphabet did, remember? And then the Princess Katumin and King Onitas, the descendants uh, of the first woman who discovered Egypt while underwater. Now, that one actually made it into the Book of Abraham, I believe it's verses 24 through 26. This whole biblical provenance, because now, Paul Osborne showed me this on the message boards, where he said the Joseph Smith himself, I believe it was in the Times and Seasons, correct me if I'm wrong, would you, Paul, on the uh, messages? So, yes, and on the 18th, on the 18th, Dan Vogel and Brent Metcalf will be back on Mormonism Live. That'll be in this Wednesday. Don't miss that. So... Yes, it is BYP time, Radio Free Mormon. Welcome. So the idea here is this biblical provenance. Joseph Smith claimed in an article that he got that by revelation. And it was direct revelation. In fact, he declared it so strongly. And, and in a way, you know, you can see uh, Joseph Smith's complete arrogance when he said, I teach nothing but the truth, diamond truth. I teach it for the ages. I am the only one basically who knows the actual truth. And God is my right-hand man. I'm not God's right-hand man to carry forward his work. No, I am so important. God is my right-hand man. That's how he put it in that article. But that was where he declared the mummies uh, were 3,500 years old. And these ancient records that were coming down came down preserved and untouched, right? Until, of course, they got to Kirtland, Ohio, and then they were purchased, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now you know the rest of the story. But we don't, because we have two prongs left. One is the biblical provenance. Uh, no one, Mormon or non-Mormon, right now today, 
accepts or agrees with that biblical provenance. No, not even Mormons. They they won't. They don't use the uh, the papyri to demonstrate the ladder of Jacob as at the the papyrological evidence for the authenticity of that story in the Old Testament, Jacob's ladder, which is now to the Jews, of course, and, and especially in the in the uh, the Kabbalah and the Zohar, they're huge on this subject. I mean, that was big for them. They constantly brought out the significance, the symbolism, of course, the philosophy with this Jacob's ladder idea. Joseph Smith claimed it was on the papyri. You're not going to see anybody today use that papyri as evidence for that biblical story because even the Mormons, shocking as this will be, even the Mormons don't believe Joseph Smith when he mentioned all of the other biblical stories of the biblical aspects of that papyri except for the book of Abraham and the book of Joseph. And of course, he never got to the book of Joseph. Dadgummit, he was too busy. Wouldn't that have been fun? Wouldn't it be fun if Russell Nelson would look into a hat with a seer stone or pull out the Urim and Thummim and translate the uh, book of Joseph? Yeah, right. You know, what is a prophet for, right? Uh, and I mean P-R-O-P-H-E-T, not P-R-O-F-I-T like we have today with their hundreds of billions. I mean a real biblical prophet, right? So this theme fundamentally destroys Joseph Smith's book of Abraham claims. Abraham, and isn't it remarkable? I mean, the church essay, 2013, man, they came out and they admitted flat out, point blank, straight at you, baby. Abraham's not in these papyri. You can't find his name. There's nothing. The particular method that was utilized, which I did talk about a lot on the Mormon stories view, that method is not within the realms of uh, Egyptological methodology right now today. We have no idea what the hell Joseph Smith was thinking. They didn't quite put it that way, but that's the basis of what they said. Of course, the book of Joseph is still missing. Well, if nothing is essentially tied to Abraham in the papyri, and if they didn't even mention all the other biblical <laughs> amounts of information, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel and the languages of the world and the fall of man and the creation and the temptation of Eve in the garden, you know, the snake walking on legs, etc. You don't see anybody in church using that stuff as evidence for the Bible. They don't believe that. So all of this goes to show you, and, and the age, of course, the age is all whacked out. I mean, that's Looney Tunes. That's way out there. Left field. Right field. My other left. <laughs> Paul Osborne has shown that that particular timing 3,500 years ago was a revelation. What does this tell you conclusion-wise? Yeah, if it really was a revelation, 
then the Mormons are in deep trouble because the then logical conclusion is based within the parameters of our current scientific understanding on how to date papyri and our current understanding based on archaeological and historical contexts. What'd you say, Doug? Put it in the chat, would you? Thank you. Um, so the the actual archaeological context doesn't even verify that Abraham and Joseph are real. I mean, the biblical archaeologists back in the early 1900s were arguing about the actual historical reality of this real flesh and blood living person. Uh, that's more or less of the myth-making capacity, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Biblical provenance means the, well, all of the characters that were identified by the early Mormons in the papyri. They mentioned the biblical people, Abraham and Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Adam, and Eve. So the idea of biblical provenance is the meaning of the papyri, if it was translated by Egyptologists, it would be talking about the Bible. That's the biblical provenance. You notice there's literally no explanation at all about the Egyptological persons in the papyri or what their religious view was. And of course, it's because Joseph Smith didn't know it. Crimony, no one in his day knew it. But then again, no one in his day knew hieroglyphics either. And yet Joseph Smith just took off and translated the papyri like crazy. And it came into a biblical meaning. It had to do with biblical people. You know, nothing about the Quran in there, nothing about the Bhagavad Gita, no other country or culture, no other time, just Abraham, just the uh, biblical patriarchs. That was the line of priesthood that Joseph Smith is said. Remember in the alphabet that uh, in the first part was about Princess Khatuman, and that second part, you remember, that was about the pure language of Adam. What's that doing with Egyptian papyri? That's the biblical tie-in. None of that has, I mean, seriously, none of it has any validity whatsoever. In anyone's eyes, the, the professors at BYU won't agree with that. Uh, whether And it doesn't matter if they're the ancient history professors or even if they are the Egyptologists or if they're actually the religion professors will because they have to come to some sort of a, a faith-promoting conclusion. They will focus mostly, of course, on Abraham because of that cool doctrine of the pre-mortal existence. And perhaps Moses with his vision of the, the entire earth and I saw every particle of it, things like that. But none of that is in the papyri. The, this book of breathings is about the owner of that role whose name was Horus. It's the book of Horus, the book of breathings of Horus. 
and Anubis, which Joseph Smith uh, mutilated and called a slave. He's actually Anubis, the deity. He is ushering in Horus into the presence of Osiris, who was the seated figure on the throne with his wife, Isis, the king. Ooh, watch out, Paul Osborne's throwing me. Come on, come on, come on. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I'll take you on, Paul. Let's go. <laughs> He's going to smack me if I ever call Isis the king again. But with the presence of Mott and Isis and Osiris, we don't hear anything about that from Joseph Smith. Of course, he couldn't have known, but wait, the early Mormons. Now, here's the other damning aspect of this biblical focus. So many of the early Mormons indicated that Joseph Smith received this knowledge through revelation. Uh, Frederick G. Williams, now he was one of Joseph's scribes. He indicated, yes, I sat right at his side and I was penning it, writing it down just as fast as I could while Joseph Smith translated it through the inspiration of God. Lucy Mack Smith says, you know, there's areas in the papyri that have the gaps, the lacuna. And when Joseph Smith got to those parts, he would put his face in the hat. Do I have a hat? I don't write off. He would put his face in the hat and the revelation would come to him and he could read the hieroglyphs that were there before those gaps by revelation. Uh, that's his own mother, you know. And uh, Wilford Woodruff claimed the burning in the bosom. They were thrilled to death when they got these documents, these artifacts, because it brought ancient Israel, again, uh, the Joseph Smith interpretation of the Egyptian religion, he put in the wrong culture at the wrong time in the wrong place. He went to Israel and not Egypt. But it put him in that line, and that was the main line he wanted to be put in two. So he completely transformed the actual meaning of that papyri into something he was much more comfortable with knowing and understanding. And so uh, the breathing primitive horror, yes. That's a good way to put it, T.O. Yeah, the conflating of biblical imagery with Egyptian Im imagery. Yes, he has. Paul Osborne has told the church to apologize for bastardizing the ancient Egyptian religion and desecrating their gods. He gave a very powerful presentation uh, when he showed that Christ statue without his hands. You know, what if people started defacing the Mormon Christ? How would that make Mormons feel? You know, that would probably offend him pretty badly. Well, tit for tat, you know. So that's the basis. So the other second prong was discussed by Radio Free Mormon and Bill Reel on the Kinderhook plates. And I want to just briefly recap why those are the second prong for one reason or another. Oh, the conclusion uh, to the biblical materials is God himself didn't even know what the papyri were about. 
if if all this knowledge came from God and the Holy Ghost was testifying to hundreds and thousands of people, then my proposition is the Mormons don't know how the Holy Ghost works. The Mormons, given the information that we have of what they have described as the Holy Ghost, uh, being the second comforter, being the one who brings all things to your remembrance, etc. Uh, given that definition, the Holy Ghost being one of the Godhead, and of course the Godhead is all one. They are united in knowledge and goals, etc., as the apostles have always taught. Then given that definition, uh, based upon the principles we understand now about the papyri, we've dated them to the Ptolemaic times, 300 to 100 BC, not 1700 BC like Joseph Smith did. Then the you have one of two choices that are very, very difficult to make. And this is where the apologists refuse to go. And who can blame them? I mean, come on, who can blame them? Uh, you can either say God didn't know a thing either, or you can say Joseph Smith was a complete fraud. He was a con man. He was lying about the whole thing. And he was being very deceptive, which, honestly, <laughs> there isn't much of any other conclusion we can come to just on that issue alone. Now, I use that issue to argue against the apologetic tactic of their intimidation that, well, if you're going to validly get into this subject, then you must know several foreign languages. You must know many ancient languages. You must have read all of the apologetic pap and pap, or I mean scholarship, and you had to have read all of the Egyptologist stuff, etc. You don't need any of that if you understand the idea that Today's knowledge based on scientific testing of ancient texts, the age of papyri, that's a pretty solid scientific analysis way to do it. We know those papyri were not in Abraham's day. Now, Don Bradley on the Kinderhook Plates, he says one of the coolest things about the Kinderhook Plates is with hindsight now, we know that those Kinderhook plates were forgeries. Fullgate told the truth. He said he, he poured wax over it, and then he carved the figures in the rat wax, and then he used acid to etch those characters in the Kinderhook plates. Well, through spectroscopic analysis and microscopic looking at the real fine details, it was acid-laced. So we know that Fullgate did it. They are modern forgeries with the hindsight of scientific information. Same principle with this papyri, with the hindsight of scientific analysis of the age of the papyri itself, the writing styles, the types of information that the rolls had on them, the manner in which they abbreviated from the Book of the Dead. Now, the Book of the Dead was the earlier Egyptological materials written about their religious beliefs. It was earlier than the Book of Breathings. Through time, they found ways to 
cram that down into less and less and less materials into a easier way so that once you got done with the putting the essential materials into the book of breathings, then you could just roll it up and put it on the breast of the mummy. And the mummy could take it with him into the coffin. So based on all of that type of scientific analysis with hindsight, we can state uncategorically that Joseph Smith got it wrong. Yeah. So if he did receive this information by revelation, then God got it wrong. And that's not where apologists want you to go to, but give us any other choice. The beautiful thing about Don Bradley and Mark Ashurst McGee's study on the Kinderhook plates is they not only demonstrate the modern materials demonstrate without question the Kinderhooks were forged, they were fakes. Joseph Smith, did he get fooled into translating the Kinderhook plates? No, he did not. Not all of them. But there was one particular character on one of the plates that Joseph Smith looked at, and he said, hmm, what if I was to go back and look into the Egyptian grammar and alphabet book that I worked on so hard to translate? And what if I look in the Egyptian stuff? And on page two of the alphabet, he found it, the ha e oop ha character. And it was basically the same shape. It was a, I'm doing this, I'm doing this very professionally with good graphics. Oh, you can't even see that. Oh, for Pete's sake. And I know Paul, Paul has been arguing that it was the mouth, but some people say it was like half of a ball. Neb is the bread basket. Could have been a mouth, could, but anyway, the shape itself was on the Kinderhook plate, and that particular shape is in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar. So Joseph Smith used that as the basis to indicate that, yes, this, this particular plate, at least, he only translated the one character. And he used this particular character to indicate that this, this person was, a, was from the loins of Ham through Pharaoh who received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. I mean, it was essentially the same translation that Joseph Smith had given this character in the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. Bill Reel and Radio Free Mormon on Mormonism Live essentially showed that what this does is it kills the missing scroll theory of John Gee and Kerry Moosting. And you ask, how does it do that? Well, it's a very simple, simple thing because the missing scroll theory postulates that the real translation of the book of Abraham happened on a missing scroll that we no longer have, and that this particular translation in the Gale, uh, Joseph Smith was not involved with it, not at all. And in fact, the culprit was W.W. W. Phelps. The whole grammar 
was Phelps' work. And this is the scribes did it through. You know, Nibley was just terrified of all of this stuff. He just threw hot water and mud all over the place, trying to throw everybody off the obvious conclusion that Joseph Smith couldn't translate spit for Egyptian, right? So Nibley tried to buy time. Well, they've been fobbing off of his silly muddying up of the waters now for 50 years. And I called for him on the Mormon stories to come clean. And let's get clear. We'll have this dialogue with you, but we're going to make some pretty tough insistence on you knocking off with your stupid charade. We know you're faking it. We know you know the issue, so you can stop faking it. You're not fooling us anymore. We also get a study of the papyri thanks to the Joseph Smith Papers Project. Yeah, baby. By the way, for the last several weeks, I have been heavily involved in updating my Joseph Smith Papers Project. You remember seeing the third volume of the Joseph Smith Papers? This is my version. I call this the Prosecutor's Edition. I have added dozens and dozens of extra graphics. The graphics I've been showing you. The graphics that I have been... See, there's the book right there. There's the book right there, that bottom part. And you can see all those gaps in between it. That's where I've added articles, analysis... I've put all my lecture notes in here. I put all my uh, graphics, my visuals in here. I put several articles by Ed Ashman, Stephen Thompson. Uh, yes, Kerry Mulstein and John Gee, et cetera, Dan Vogel's materials and all that. So this thing is a whopping, you know, it's like four and a half inches thick. It's huge. That way, all I have to do whenever I'm called upon to talk about the Joseph Smith papyri is just grab that one book, and I have all of my sources. Yeah, baby, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I know it, Mo. Yes, BYP's nuclear weapon. I am armed and dangerous. There's no question about that. Well, I'm dangerous anyway. <laughs> Probably to myself. It's like when I say when I practice nunchucks, I got so dang good with nunchucks, I got dangerous to myself. I bruised the heck out of myself using them. <laughs> Smack myself in the head. So the the Kinderhook plates issue is that they destroy the missing scroll theory. Why? How do they do that? Because the theory indicates that Joseph Smith is not responsible for the grammar and alphabet. Now, of course, we know that he dictated the translations to his scribes who were writing it down. And through this dictation process, Joseph Smith was taking the lead. It was his work. We know now he was intimately involved with all of the, well, with the, the Khatoum in the valuable discovery. He actually signed that. It was valuable to him. He was identifying the mummies he had with him and the alphabet. And then the alphabet is an expansion into the grammar. All of that was on the right-hand side of facsimile number one. You remember that? Yeah. In fact, my very, my very opening shot in my book, if I don't have a ton of time to take three months to read all this material to my inquirer, 
my opening shot is that picture right there. And that is, oh, there we go. That's even better to see. That is the entire argument in summation form graphically. It is on the right-hand side of facsimile number one where we get the alphabet from. Once he got done with the alphabet and the astronomy up there in that green little square, and then the signature of Abraham down in that other column, then he moved over to the left-hand side of facsimile number one into here, the Book of Breathings, and he put those characters in the margins of the Book of Abraham translation. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. Translated that out and came out into the Book of Abraham. Joseph Smith valued those characters enough to use that Egyptian character as a basis for translating the forged Kinderhook character. That tells you John Gee and Kerry Mulstein, well, with their reverse translation theory, all of that's bogus. The catalyst theory, Bill thought about it all day long when he realized, hey, the catalyst theory is also destroyed by this Kinderhook discovery of using the ha-o-e-oop character out of the grammar of the Egyptian papyri. Because the catalyst theory says Joseph Smith, while looking at the papyri, he wasn't thinking about the Egyptian. He didn't have to because God was giving him the revelation of a book of Abraham. The papyri, they didn't mean anything. They may not, they they may as well not have even been there. It was a catalyst to a revelation. Well, it didn't happen with John's parchment when he translated John through a vision, but they like to claim that it happened here with the papyri. And of course, there's no evidence for that. It's just a desperate Hail Mary pass that got dropped. It didn't succeed. In fact, the quarterback got sacked before he threw the pass with this Kinderhook discovery. So that destroys the catalyst theory as well because Joseph Smith himself was using this glyph in an actual, normal translation method of comparing the glyph with what was on the Kinderhooks plate, right? That's what a translator does. It shows Joseph Smith was involved with it. showed this was the authoritative source. So it's a very interesting one-two prong. And the way I took some notes, I want to I wanna try to read these a little bit. Yes, all of the explanations. Good point, Teresa. All of the explanations are destroyed. Hey, let, tell me something. Tell me something if I put that right there. Do you hear an echo at all? I tried to turn my sound down on my phone so that there's no echo. Let me know. This way I can read. Were any of those characters used in the Anthon transcript? Good question, Cameron. Not to my knowledge, but I do know there are studies showing that the, uh, Dan Vogel shows how the characters of the Book of Mormon were potentially invented in a video, but they do look similar 
to the uh, the pure language, the atomic language. And so there's a possibility there. Okay, no echo. Good. Good, good, good. Well, then I'll be able to interact. Yes, uh, Paul Osborne is in the Celestial Forum in Shades, and that's where he's doing some of his best work. And I am joining him there as well. And we are getting ready to analyze a whole bunch of new stuff. That's where we learned about the Anubis snout and things like that. And see, that's the other thing. If by revelation, Joseph Smith was giving us a proper restoration, then why would he have to change up the facsimiles so much? See, that really doesn't make sense, does it? Why would you have to change the shape of Anubis? Call the ladies men. Uh, fill in facsimile number two with hieroglyphs from the Book of Breathings. You know, add a uh, add a knife and the ridiculously stupid human head to the priest, in fact, simile number one, when pretty much every lion count scene we've ever seen, that is Anubis, the jackal-headed deity. Yeah. So, I mean, nothing actually was very well restored uh, through time. Once, once I exited my apologetic mindset, and this takes some time to do, I promise. In fact, every now and then I slip back into it. The, uh, the dawning realization occurs that not one interpretation in any of the three facsimiles have come out accurate, right? Uh, just exactly like not one character on the Kinderhook plates was authentic. Even the one that looked like the genuine Gale Egyptian character, which Joseph Smith translated. So forgery on one, a completely bogus translation on the other. If God did reveal any information, then God is on the line. And this is why uh, Don Bradley and Mark Ashurst McGee tried to show that Joseph Smith was attempting to translate using a conventional translator's method without any revelation whatsoever and without any inspiration. There was no kumbaya, my lord, or anything like that. There was no seer stone mentioned. There was no face in the hat. There was no Urim and Thummim at all. And so they're trying to save Joseph Smith. And I mean, you can't blame him. You got to try to save him from something because <laughs> his Joseph Smith translation was simply a steal, mostly from Adam Clark's Bible commentary. The Book of Mormon, probably a, a mishmash of various uh, texts in his day. And now we have the Book of Abraham, which of course we know he got information from Josephus and uh, the other gentleman, I knew I was going to have a brain fart here. The the one that talked about the uh, the plurality of worlds. I did a whole video on this. Anyway, maybe one of you guys can remind me in the comments. I can't remember. So, um, in solving this mystery of the Kinderhooks, we get a much larger conundrum, and that is the problem with 
the book of Abraham. Now, all of this is interrelated. I think Bill Real made a stunningly powerful point that I want to reiterate again. For those of you who missed the Mormonism Live, you really ought to go back and watch it if you can. Uh, he did mention, and this is toward the end of their fabulous show, where Real said, now look, the apologists seek to control the narrative in this respect that uh, they want everything studied and analyzed in isolation. They want you to, you know, categorize everything. In this slot, we have Book of Mormon. Now, over here in this slot, we have the Book of Abraham. And over here, unrelated entirely, we have the Kinderhook plates, etc. And they don't want to recognize any overlap between those. But if, if history is an ongoing flow of events, we know it is from our perspective, and that the events can be related as well as interrelated, then we do need to assess the significance of what happened with the Book of Mormon and the gold plates, as opposed to what happened with the Book of Abraham and the papyri and bring in the idea, the theme of the Kinderhook plates. And in all of these, including the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible and his biblical revelations, that's where we get the book of Moses, you know, D&C 132, right? The polygamy chapter. So, all of this has to have interrelationships. And by keeping that in mind, rather than studying them in isolation, and if we solve every single problem here, then that means there won't be problems over here in this particular area of Joseph Smith's scriptures or cosmology, etc., that's an artificial way to look at that. And, you know, I can't help but agree entirely with Bill. His point is very powerful because nothing is done in isolation. And actually all bits and pieces, parts really do kind of cross check, contradict, go against the grain, but heads, they either explode or implode in logical paradoxes, problems. And when you try to take some of this stuff to the conclusions, then it gets very tricky that way. So this theme of the of the Kinderhook plates, I just wanted to touch a couple of highlights. I've, I've written this out as like eight pages. I'm already at an hour and I wanted to talk to you a little bit, but um, yeah. Now this is very interesting. We see the, the determination, the desire for uh, Mormon scholars to uh, hang on to the theme that regardless um, of, of whether the translation came by revelation or just a conventional standard translation, etc., regardless of whether Joseph Smith actually translated a forged character on a forged archaeological discovery, uh, 
or whether he mistranslated an Egyptian character. It doesn't matter because Joseph Smith believed that the Kinderhook plates was genuine, could be used to argue that he was a true prophet. <laughs> really? <laughs> it suggests that he believed in real buried records, as one would expect if he had found such a record himself. And my comment on that is I, I can't follow this line of reasoning since we can't say this of his translating the papyri. We can't say this of Joseph Smith dating the papyri 3,500 years old, nor describing it of having biblical characteristics and biblical personalities, because it's irrelevant what his experience or even his belief is. It is entirely relevant if it turns out accurate. There's the relevance of the test, right? So the downside of this is nothing turned out to be accurate. So how they get a true profit out of that is truly a mystery to me. Uh, perhaps someday they'll try to explain it. But again, uh, what I am seeing here is the, the attempt to separate Joseph Smith from Revelation while involved with the Kinderhook translation. But, I mean, he was an enthusiastic amateur linguist who really did have an interest in languages. And so let's grant him the he translated as a man, not as a prophet idea. And we can still hopefully make Joseph Smith being a true prophet. That appears to me to be the angle that they've been taking with this Kinderhook thing, right? But how you can get a true prophet out of that, that just doesn't make sense to me. So, And then they say that uh, Stanley Kimball and many other devout Latter-day Saints try to make it that Joseph Smith didn't translate at all. Uh, they try to make it that they really badly want to defend Joseph Smith as a true prophet. And so let's eliminate the whole idea of him even translating whatsoever. Now, Stanley Kimball's analysis is 30 years old, so it's pretty much out of date, right? But they are arguing that he did translate and can remain a true prophet, even though he translated a forgery using a bogus Egyptian hieroglyphic. You know, I know, I, I get it. The mental gymnastics is breathtaking, you know. This is the same apologetic bias that gets in the way of the apologist on the papyri, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So that's kind of, and then they, oh, here we go. Then they pull this interesting observation. I'm going to go ahead and read a few of my notes. Um, and I'll quote, quote, it is reasonable to place the Kinderhook Plates episode in the same context as the Book of Mormon, that Joseph Smith was either translating or pretending to translate the Kinderhook Plates by the power of God. But this assumption ignores the evidence that Joseph Smith had a personal interest in languages, that he engaged in traditional translation without 
claiming divine aid and that he approached the kinderhook plates in precisely this fashion. Now, my thought on reading this is I said, okay, so granting this, who gets to decide when he translates as a prophet and when he translates as only a man? I mean, if it ends up accurate, then yes, he translated as a prophet. And if it's wrong, then you say, no, he was just translating as a man. I mean, that's pretty convenient, isn't it? When you stop and think about it, because all of the Egyptian Gale, the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, is completely wrong. And yet he used that to give a translation of a forged character on the Kinderhook plates. So would it matter if he did it by revelation or of himself? It's phony. If by revelation, that pulls God into a very nasty conclusion in Mormonism. And yet we have it that Frederick G. Williams maintained while I was writing down from the dictation of this guy over here next to me, he was receiving it by inspiration and I was writing down the translation of the papyri hieroglyphs. And Wilfred Woodruff claimed the Holy Ghost gave him a burning of the bosom, testifying to him the truth of the translation of the book of Abraham. And both the Pratt brothers claimed either the Urim and Thummim or the Seer Stone. Adam West declared the direct inspiration from Jesus Christ himself helped Joseph Smith translate. And in all of these incredible instances of witnesses who were closest to Joseph Smith and involved with Joseph Smith in person, just like the Kinderhook plates, when he compared the alphabet with the Kinderhook plate, same concept, all of these claims to revelation don't save the translation, but it should. And that's the conclusion that the apologists won't go to. Right, so so this is a serious conundrum, is what I'm telling you. And after they, and then now this is in anyway. Wait a minute. I could have swore I wrote this down. I think this is in their paper that they wrote together because I'm, I'm listing the, yeah, this is in their paper. The Joseph Smith papyri, oh, no, and the kinder. Yeah, uh, President Smith has translated a portion, solving the mystery of the kinder place. No, that's his uh, fair discussion. Joseph Smith and the kinder place, that's their paper, sorry. I'm not trying to confuse you, I promise. So, and they say on page 101 of their paper now, 
they're saying after discussing the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, they further claim that, quote, using the papyri, Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham by the divine gift of revelation, unquote. See, they, they are not familiar enough with the uh, with the uh, papyri materials. I mean, that's that's the only charitable conclusion I can give to this, because with that claim that he translated it by revelation, and nothing matches. Now, here's the catch. Here's the deal. To quote Radio Free Mormon, um, with the claim of revelation and the translation, the book of Abraham should be historically pretty good. But Paul Osborne is beginning to demonstrate, and he said he'll have a huge study on this, on the actual history as we understand it, based again on scientific analysis, historical comparisons of documents, not only across ancient cultures, you know, the Mesopotamian compared to the Egyptian, the ancient Assyrian, the ancient Babylonian, the ancient Jewish, etc., as well as carbon dating and the archaeological discoveries. William Dever is huge on this for early Israel, and he says Abraham is an entire myth. But based on just the history alone of what we understand of all of the archaeology of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs and their kings and all of those texts that have survived that are carved in the stones of their temples, of their pyramids. They're written on the inside of the coffins, so that's why we call them the coffin texts. The entire history of Egypt, we understand decently now, and none of it matches the book of Abraham. Now, Paul Osborne has come out saying, now he's shown some very powerful materials about the Anubis snout, and he has shown very powerful tools about the translation of the Egyptian hieroglyphs in facsimile number three. Uh, I have demonstrated, and I'm not the first, I'm, you know, I got to toot my own horn. Paul Osborne hasn't done it all, even though he has done it all. Some of us have also been working independently from him although there's not that man covers a boatload of ground man he's wonderful to read he's showing how the history of egypt just doesn't match the restoration facsimile number 1 can't possibly be to egyptological standards there's no egyptologist out there other than rhodes gee mulstein and nibley Possibly Smoot might come around to this. I hope not, because it's going to kill his credibility. But there's no one who says the restoration of facsimile number one is in the least bit accurate. It, it's just simply not. None of the explanations are. So for these guys to say that it was received by revelation damns God. And I'm not sure if they've thought about the implications of that. 
Again, just like we now know with the benefit of hindsight and the use of scientific instrumentation to really know that Fulgate, who admitted later that he was the forger, he described how he did it, and now we can take our scientific instrumentation, test those plates, and sure enough, they are a modern forgery. We can do the same thing with the same principles on papyri, language, the archaeology of the temples, the pyramids, the halls, etc. We can do the same thing with ancient Egypt now. And there's no way. By See again the conundrum. You are no longer uh, have the luxury of using that magic word, revelation, to save Joseph Smith. Because what that does now, based on all that we know, thanks to hindsight, see, we've got 200 years of work on it now. We have a much better historical context than Joseph Smith ever could have possibly imagined or gotten revealed by God. Now we know that if you're going to claim revelation, you're damning God. Joseph Smith can't be saved by that approach. And, <laughs> ta-da, what's the final theory they have to fall back on? Catalyst. And it's dead on arrival. It is D-O-A. Sincerely, they're out of options. This game is over. Check mate apologists. You've lost. Now, of course, they don't believe that. So they're going to keep spinning their yarns and they're going to keep trying to uh, muddy up the issues. I just recently posted, uh, I was going back through some of the old archive materials and back in uh, 20, oh, what was it, Dan? You just saw my post, Dan Vogel's here, I think, 2010 or something like that. Back then when Kevin Graham was still arguing with Wade England and uh, William Shriver and his ridiculous cipher theory, and Dan Vogel was there and Brett Metcalf was there. Every now and then, Daniel C. Peterson peeked in and said something really stupid and then got lambasted and destroyed and tucked his tail between his legs and ran like a dog that got whipped. But... Uh, Vogel and Graham and a, a man named George Miller, who was a very good student of the Kirtland Egyptian papers, the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language. Every one of them tried to show the apologists that you're mudding up the waters by claiming that the Egyptian alphabet, you remember what that's about, Khartoumen, the first part is about Khartoumen and the royal line. The second section was the Adamic language. The third section was the Garden of Eden. The fourth section was the astronomy. All of that in the hieroglyphs. On the other side of facsimile number one, the apologists were claiming that because this source doesn't match the book of Abraham, then it was a cipher. <laughs> and of course, they just destroyed England and, and Shriver. They just wiped him clear out because nobody's claiming that the source of the book of Abraham is the hieroglyphs on 
the right side of facsimile number one, those were taken from the left side out of the book of breathings. And we've got the beautiful evidence when they took the hieroglyphs in sequential order from the four top lines of the book of breathings, put them in the margins of the translation book of Abraham texts, and translated each hieroglyph using the five degrees of significance and meaning, and through their dissecting and giving different bits and pieces of information of each particular part of each particular hieroglyph, then they translated out the book of Abraham. But not from the Gale. No one's ever claimed that. See, this missing role theory of Guy and Mulstein is dead. The catalyst theory can't even get flight. It's dead immediately. So this is all pretty astonishing. And they say the alphabet is really more of a lexicon. What they leave out is that none of it is actually ancient Egyptian from Abraham's time. But that was a revelation. So, so they're, they're in trouble is what we're saying. And then they go through several apologetic themes as to why Smith's translation of the papyri is so wrong and the attempts to save the prophet uh, without discussing the fatal problems. To be fair to them, though, that would have moved them off topic. So, But they conclude that much of the alphabet info is not in the book of Abraham and much of the book of Abraham is not in the alphabet. And so it could not be translated by solely using it. And that, of course, is correct. The alphabet is not the basis of the book of Abraham. The grammar and alphabet is not the basis of the book of Abraham. But they're still so confused because that's what the apologists keep saying. Kerry Mulstein's 2020 fair presentation, one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. And he was acting serious. <laughs> and then when, then when Scott Gordon interviewed Mulstein, he said, well, what do you think about uh, the translation? Then he goes, well, it depends on what current time of day and, you know, all. it depends on your, whether you're awake or asleep or alive or dead or whatever. No, it doesn't. It depends on the evidence, Carrie. <laughs> evidence is what indicates the reality and truth. So. The subject of great controversy in Mormon history is these enigmatic documents of the Egyptian papyri. Well, the enigmatic documents are controversial within Mormonism. And of course, it's obvious why. Joseph Smith, in a deceiving way, falsely translated them. And the Book of Abraham is a bogus translation. So they want to save Joseph Smith. So they have to have controversy. But to the Egyptologists, the case is an open and shut case. It's really quite 
simple. Joseph Smith said, these are the hieroglyphs I'm going to use. These are the English words that the hieroglyphs translate into. And ta-da, we have the book of Abraham. When they translate those hieroglyphs and they see what they translate into, the Egyptologists say, ta-da, no book of Abraham. And that's Egyptologists, both non-Mormon and the Mormon ones. Look, Hugh Nibley translated those. He never found the book of Abraham. That's why he postulated a missing source. He couldn't take the straightforward, obvious answer and conclusion. Uh, Michael Dennis Rhodes has translated the papyri, and he doesn't get the book of Abraham either. John Gee and Kerry Molstein are both translated. Nobody, when they're translating the hieroglyphs, get the book of Abraham except Joseph Smith. There's your problem. Yeah. So, oh, and then this was interesting. They show Joseph's study of the Hebrew and the Greek and the Latin and the German. And uh, they're taking this approach as a basis of Joseph Smith saying on one occasion, I will now turn linguist. And he wants to start showing off how much he knows language-wise to the people. But when he translates out the Egyptian, it comes out gibberish. There really are no genuine Egyptian names. Anywhere in Joseph Smith's work, in, in the alphabet, in the grammar and alphabet, in the, the uh, valuable discovery, nothing there that they were working on is actual Egyptian, nor in the Book of Abraham translation of the Book of Breathings. So, yeah, he wanted to turn linguist, but that didn't help him. Studying the Hebrew and finding, see, the apologist tactic of finding the Hebrew parallels to the four gods' names under the lion couch in facsimile number one. That's a typical standard apologetic snowball tactic. But we don't care what other Semitic languages those invented names identify with. It's Egyptian that we're interested in. Joseph Smith never gave us anything correct on that line. So they try to fool us, and we're no longer fooled. That's essentially what it comes down to. And this was good, too, on page 105, the Charlotte Haven account. She described the actual uh, Kinderhook Plates uh, translation issue also. Uh, and Bradley and McGee both say it purports to show how Joseph Smith initially expected to translate the Kinderhook plates. And that was by revelation. Now, this is worth emphasizing for another angle yet again. Thanks to the overall historic context of the papyri that I've been talking about, the contemporary witnesses to the mummy in the papyri, and to the Book of Abraham translation, we know that Joseph Smith pushed this context of him getting revelation when it came to translating ancient languages. That's the context he always wanted to prime his Mormon audience with because it helped them believe in him as a true 
uh, inheritor, as it were, in the true biblical line of authority. Now they had their own biblical prophets. So Joseph Smith never did anything to correct anyone um, in claiming when he was translating through inspiration or by revelation in his day. And several testified, as I've told, about the Holy Ghost telling them that was true. Yeah, very interesting. Adam West, Frederick G. Williams, Lucy Mack Smith, Wilford Woodruff, both Pratt brothers, always claimed that revelation did the translating. Only today, in hindsight, now that we can look back and say, uh, yeah, the Kinderhook plates are fake after all. Only then does the argument arise that, well, after all, he really wasn't translating by revelation. <laughs> he was just more or less doing a, an academic exercise. Yeah, he was working as a man. That was never brought up in Joseph Smith's day. There was no such argument. Joseph Smith said, yes, I've received the revelation of heaven. Here's what the language says. Lo and behold, look how magnificent this new knowledge is. And they soaked it up. They never argued about it like we do because they didn't know like we know, right? Yeah, there's the difference. Oh, the difference time can make. And then on page 106, they talked about the evidence shows this was going on as a conventional translation by comparing the alphabet characters to the Kinderhook ones, a method typical of traditional translation. Since the characters were the same, the ha e oop ha character was the match. And it was based on his translation of the Kinderhook character. So this is how they're trying to save Joseph Smith, the prophet. This proves, however, that Joseph Smith believed the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language character was a valid, conventional, translated character. And this wipes out John Gee and Kerry Mulstein and now Stephen Smoot. Otherwise, why would he use it? I mean, he's the one that translated it, right? It, page 110, in contrast, there is no mention of Joseph Smith using the Urim and Thummim or the seer stones or divine revelation of any kind in any of the sources close to the Kinderhook translation event, right? Yes, I will, Doug. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what time is it? Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe how fast time flies. Okay, yeah, I will. Thank you for the reminder. So with the benefit and hindsight of modern scientific testing equipment, I've gone over that. We see the place differently than Joseph Smith did. Time has shown that he was mistaken. So notice when they when they can get us, when they can get the situation manipulated to the point that it's just translating as a man, then you're allowed to say Joseph Smith was mistaken. But that argument only has ever arisen since we have proven the Kinderhook plates were forgery. In Joseph Smith's day, 
Orson Pratt and others frequently produced the facsimiles and published them as proof that the Book of Mormon gold plates were real. See, the importance of physical evidence, and, and Bradley and McGee talk about that. The importance of the physical evidence, you know. Today, the apologists, every damn one of them say, oh, well, you know, technically, it's not by physical means anyway that you get your testimony. It's all done by the spirit. Malarkey. Everybody has to have the physical evidence because that's what changes the probability. So, uh, and then there's one last thing that I wanted to, uh, yeah, I want to I wanna talk with you. This is too good to lose. They admit, Ashurst, or uh, yeah, uh, McGee and Bradley, they admit, oh, no, 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 this is, I'm sorry, I'm misattributing them. This is in the blog of the Times and Seasons. This is Chad Nielsen, I think. Is this Chad Nielsen's art article? Uh, January 13th, 2022. He, he interviewed both Bradley and McGee. Uh, you can find this online, the Times and Seasons. And they say Joseph Smith used ordinary linguistic approach to translation. Smith would have used the Egyptian alphabet lexicon to produce an ordinary translation. The implication is that the Gale character is a translation, right? There goes Gay and Mulstein's theory, shot to hell. So what, and, and here's what he says, whatever you make of the Gale uh, in 1835, here in 1843 with the Kinderhook plates, you see Joseph Smith using it as an ordinary translation tool. See, ordinary translation, yeah, sure, sure. Well, this implies, of course, that the Egyptian character was translated by Joseph Smith, not from his scribes speculating, of course. And the other thing is, uh-oh, there we go. The other thing is, would he use their speculation as a basis for his translation, especially considering the theory of Guy and Mulstein that Joseph Smith couldn't possibly have translated anything in the Gale because it's so incorrect. But on the missing scroll where he properly translated, if that's found, Egyptologists today could translate that, and voila, they would have the Book of Abraham. See, this completely obliterates 35 years of apologetic claptrap and noise. You know, BYU have been wasting its money on those idiots for way too long, their arguments. So I shouldn't call them idiots. I should say their arguments are idiotic. I apologize for the ad hominem, not intending that. But it is idiotic how they do this. So they admit that there is some gray area to consider here related to the Egyptian alphabet and Joseph Smith's translation projects, and now they're hedging. Of course, there's a gray area. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Nobody accepts the Gale as actual Egyptian translation now. <laughs> so, you know, there is apologetic, although I, I will hand it to them. They, they have done this in a much more crisp a scholarly manner than most Mormons dealing with this difficult issue of translating ancient texts in Joseph Smith's day. 
have ever done. So they're, they're doing pretty good. My hat's off to them. They really are trying to, but you know, you solve one problem in one area and you produce another in another. That's how it's always worked with Mormonism, right? That's why Bill Real says you have to take them all connected together and see the implications and consequences of everything. I completely agree with that. So, uh, the concepts of the Gale character that Joseph Smith used to translate the Kinderhook plate. Now, here's my idea here. The concepts ended up in the Book of Abraham translation itself, though, which, if the catalyst theory is true, is in deep trouble because we now know that character has nothing to do. It ain't Egyptian. <laughs> it ain't. I'm saying. So the, the problem is huge here. And it can't be used to translate an actual forgery anyway. <laughs> right? One, it's a phony Egyptian character, and two, it's translating a forged character on the plates. I mean, wow. We're talking ridiculous here, right? <laughs> Huh. And yet Joseph Smith used it. Yeah. Yeah, man. If it's incorrect at Kinderhook, and of course it is, you don't correctly translate a forgery, right? Then it's incorrect in the Gale and the Book of Abraham. And yet Frederick G. Williams said the Book of Abraham came by revelation. Boy, there's the damning point every time, man. That's amazing, isn't it? So they say it's not easy to distinguish the methods or the productions of academic from prophetic translation. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It's difficult to distinguish. All right. Listen to how this works. The correct hits will equal revelation. And the misses and the anachronisms and all that mistakes will be attributed to him translating as a man. I mean, how convenient, right? But is it convincing? Pfft, are you kidding me? Not a chance. No, that's not how that works. So. And then. Rather than a strictly academic endeavor or a curious incident, this is another article. Uh, I can't, can't find a, a different article. I believe this is in the juvenile instructor, and he's talking to uh, McGee. And he says, rather than a strictly academic endeavor or a curious incident, the Kinderhook episode may provide us with the clearest glimpse into the process of revelatory translation in action. You go, huh? What the hell? How in the how do you possibly get revelation from the Kinderhook translation? So there are some who still can't get off that boat. You know, they gotta have Joseph Smith be a true prophet, right? So, and then he contradicts himself by saying the characters involved the full unfolding of the full meaning. Oh, this is too good to lose. Hold on. I'm going to read this. To, I'm, I'm going to hold on. Just be patient with me. 
Okay, this is uh yeah, this is in the blog. Well, I said I could have swore it was the other blog article. There's two times and seasons interviews and articles. One was in 2020, and this one is in January 13th, 2022. Uh, this is Chad Nielsen, and I believe this is the one. I should have underlined them. If it's not Chad Nielsen, I, I'm sorry, Chad. I don't mean to insult you, but anyway, here's his here's his description of trying to save Joseph Smith with this translation thing. Ah, that's mental gymnastics at its best, man. The character quote, the characters involved the full unfolding of the full meaning and syntactical articulation similar to the Gale, the grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, the Gale. And based upon interpreting visual indications of augmentation, diminishment, and combination as seen in the specimen of the pure language and the gale. The translation process did not involve Joseph Smith narrating a vision or repeating an auditory dictation. It entailed the textual rendering into English of ancient characters. In this way, there is a likely link between the translation of the Book of Mormon and Kinderhook Plates, unquote. And Joseph Smith, this is me, and Joseph Smith used the Gales translated character for this. Interesting, they, they're trying to tie in the Book of Mormon. Well, if the same translation process was used for Kinderhook, and you're going to tie that into the Book of Mormon, good luck maintaining Joseph Smith's a true prophet. I mean, if that's the tactic you want to take, good luck, man. So if he mixed in, he they conclude that there is no revelation here, just translation. And yet he somehow mixed a revelatory translation method in with his scholarly method. And I'm going, what? How in the hell do you mix the two? How do you, how do you know, for one thing, that there is a mixture of the revelation and the scholarly, right? I mean, this is just bluster and bluff, so far as I can tell. How do you distinguish the two? Based on what materials, evidences, and criteria? Who the hell knows? But they're saying, hey, it could be a mixture. See, they're trying to give it credibility and yet exonerate God when there's bad errors and mistakes. Oh, well, that was when he was translating conventionally as a man. And then if there just happens to be a historical connection and a and a hit, then they say, oh, see, God was revealing it to the prophet, Joseph Smith, the true prophet. See, they're trying to cover both bases. <laughs> it just can't work. It's just pure bunk. This is hokum. And then they conclude that there's no revelation here in the Kinderhook, just translation. Yet he may have mixed a revelatory method. So if he mixed the revelatory methods, that simply damns God to deception. 
there's the conclusion they don't want you to arrive at. Yeah, that's tough, man. Because what on earth are you trying to bring in Revelation on a forgery for? Why would you even take that tactic? I have no idea. <laughs> I'd like to be interviewed by the Times and Seasons and ask him that question. <laughs> right? So anyway, okay, so those are the two prongs, the biblical nature of the papyri and the translation nature of the Kinderhook using the papyri. Both of those arrows point to Joseph Smith, you're a con man. Yeah, that's what it leads to. So that is my summation of the this semester that I've given you on the uh, getting clear on the Joseph Smith papyri. Now, I talked with Doug Vincent the other day on the phone, and I asked him, uh, I said, what? And I will ask you, and let's discuss this for a bit. We've got enough time. You guys don't mind gabbing at me for about 10 minutes, do you? I know I'll bore the heck out of you, but we'll try, right? So what subjects, what subjects are you guys interested in, in talking about? What would you like me to share with you next? Or do you want me to continue on with this area? I mean, I can bring back uh, information on the papyri uh, periodically from time to time. But I have had a, another good friend uh, ask me about doing something with William Law, for instance. And I have had a few requests of people who have asked, what about uh, Joseph Smith and Freemasonry? Because they were so intrigued by the uh, by Paul Osborne's discussion of the motivation to take off Anubis's snout could very well, plausibly and probably, be tied to him being involved with Freemasonry. We know the Temple Endowment and all of that noise is tied in with Freemasonry. There's no question about that. Or would you want to do something on the Book of Mormon? Or, you know, what interests you guys now? Where would you like to take this? So let's let's see what you're saying. Oh, folk magic. Yeah, there you go. Folk magic in Joseph Smith's day. That would be all fun topic. That would be fun too for me personally. Because, of course, when D. Michael Quinn came out with all his materials, I took the apologetic approach. And what I did is, instead of studying D. Michael Quinn's stuff, I read the apologists and accepted their arguments. Stupid thing to do, I know, but that's how you think when you're an apologist. So... Taking off the snout would be a fun discussion. I, I have, Mike Weist. I think I talked about that two times ago. Uh, William Law would be great, and Masonry. Why the Book of Mormon is against Masonry only to embrace it. Uh, I think Dan Vogel has covered that pretty well. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about any of these. Yeah, and Paul Osborne, Book of Mormon, Geography, Delmarva Peninsula. That's a hot topic. I, I might do that one anyway, uh, regardless of what we want to jump into, simply because that's quite a subject. Uh, it's not maniacal. 
Hoffman would be interesting. Yes, ma'am. Batty cake, darling. Mark Hoffman would be interesting. That was one of my shelf crackers. Uh, I like that idea because we get into the salamander. And of course, then that's the basis for D. Michael Quinn and all that deals. Yeah. Uh, and there's another one for Book of Mormon geography. Is there any current research into the archaeological evidence of BYU or Ricks? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, BYU scared spitless to get into the archaeology anymore ever since uh, Thomas Stewart Ferguson and all those guys. Um, let's see the Joseph Smith, the Brigham Young transition. That is another good topic. You guys, it really is, but enough about me. Tell me what you think of me. Yes. Radio free Mormon. Would you please start that discussion with me? <laughs> he pulled that on me earlier. Let you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Revisit DNA. Now, now that's an option too. The DNA topic cannot be exhausted. And that is a great topic. And that would tie in well with the Book of Mormon geography, wouldn't it? But DNA and Book of Mormon geography could, could uh, go really well together. And that is a great topic. Uh, I'll write those down. Yeah. Uh, Hoffman and uh, yeah, uh, Hoffman. Yeah, RFM, of course, you're terrific. We all love you, man. Brigham Young's son showing that the Book of Mormon couldn't be a hemispheric text. That's interesting. Mormons printing fake money. Go prof. Oh, thank you, Pat. Hey, another one too, though, is, uh, and I just recently learned this. I thought he had left it out and blew it, but uh, Joseph Smith and mushrooms. I'm, I might do that on my own anyway, just because uh, I have some wonderful friends who uh, have some sources on that as a basis for some of his revelations. That's not a sarcastic or joke. Um, oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, going into Ferguson would be, yeah. Um, what's his name? Here we go. I'm going off camera again. I apologize. I know RFM hates it when I do that, but oh, hey, see. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? In Stan Larson, Quest for the Gold Plates, man, that was a great look at Thomas Stuart Ferguson. In the middle of them, I have Wesley Walters' 1973 study, Joseph Smith Among the Egyptians. You notice my writing all over it? Yeah, I do that. And then D.J. Nelson, the Joseph Smith papyri. Now, this is the translation that Hugh Nibley said was a really good start and a very credible translation. And then when he finally shut up and read it, he realized, oh, wait, this doesn't prove Joseph Smith. Let's get rid of him. <laughs> what a coward. Anyway, yeah, uh, Ferguson. Ferguson could be very, very interesting. Bennett, yeah, Bennett. That's another. And the uh, and the actual, now, the, uh, the, the destruction of the printing press because he destroyed the newspaper. Uh, that newspaper, just a one pager, but that did nothing but tell the truth. And I didn't realize that as an apologist for 16 years, we were always just, oh, well, it was full of anti-Mormon lies. It didn't have one lie in it. So I've been tempted to do a video on that. So that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. The, the mushroom thesis, I, because I've been studying Carl Rook and, uh, Mararescu on the mushroom cult of antiquity. And that is fascinating. I, I'm well read on that particular subject. I just didn't realize you could tie Joseph Smith into it. Datura could have been Huff Daddy. Yeah. Datura, it could have been. 
Uh, have you read Roberts' study of the Book of Mormon? B.H. Uh, Roberts is also a fantastically interesting study. Yeah, uh, and his study of the Book of Mormon is good. Definitely. William Law is my hero, according to Fine Business Operator. Yeah, oh, I, I do believe you're the one that asked about that. I'm going to, you know, William Law, I will look into him. I, I might, I will... Hey, I'm going to do something on all of these subjects. I keep saying, yeah, I might jump into that. I'll actually do them all. I will, because you guys have some fantastic stuff, too. And it's fun to share across the board and try to get some broader implications of Mormon history, as well as uh, the broader implications of how Mormons have manipulated history. That is pretty important to understand, too. Some newspapers aren't very useful. Thank you for that piece of testimony. Build up Radio Free Mormon. May the farce be with you, my brother. <laughs> Use the force, Radio Free. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah, B.H. Roberts would be interesting. The life of Sidney Rigdon. Boy, wouldn't that be fascinating. That would be. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not that interested in the word of wisdom and its origins, but you guys might be, and that would be fun. John Taylor and hiding Oh, the whole polygamy fiasco post-1890 manifesto. Oh, my God, that's a nightmare. How they incriminated themselves in federal court and lied. Ooh, that's vicious. Yeah, that's some good stuff. Post-manifesto polygamy, it would, too. Dynamic teachings. Oh, you guys are typing too fast. Mormon colonies in Mexico would be very interesting too. The latest theory of who killed Joseph Smith. Well, obviously it was Emma. Uh, the, let's see. I wonder if there are any outbreaks of ergotism in Smith's time. That's true. It was an outbreak in the 1600s, and that's part of the uh, discussion. Uh, what about ergot? Uh, that very well could have been part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Joseph Smith's first vision can be described as a mushroom trip, not to denigrate it, but as to understand it. Uh, there's a lot of people back then who were having their first visions. Dan Vogel's book, The Seekers, talk about that. I still don't know where I put my copy of that. That was one of his best books. I bought that decades ago. Fun read. I wish I could find it. Uh, bulletproof vests. At debates, that would be a good topic to discuss. RFM could help me out on that one. <laughs> Even though I've made a review video of it. <laughs> oh, you guys crack me up, man. Blaming Indians for the Mountain Meadow. Yeah, Mountain Meadows is a tough one, too. That might be interesting. Yeah, they perjured themselves in Congress. Absolutely. That's true. Bulletproof vests are superfluous over temple garments. We can talk about the myth of temples, temple garments protecting you, too. That, that could be interesting. Danites. Yeah, the Danites. Well, Joseph Smith becoming king. That's quite a topic, too. Uh, I, I actually had H. Michael McQuart in my home personally, and he gave us, me and a bunch of good friends of mine, uh, a lecture on that. And the Joseph Smith Papers, I've got the volume, it's one of those behind me, actually described that process, how they became kings secretly, of course. You know, that's anti-constitutional. But remember, Joseph Smith was a true-blooded American. Yeah, whatever. So. Okay, so here's what I've got. 
Here's what I've got. Mark Hoffman, DNA slash Book of Mormon Geography, Joseph and Mushrooms, William Law, Word of Wisdom, uh, The Succession Crisis. That's odd that God didn't provide a way because Joseph Smith probably felt like he was going to survive Carthage and make it out to the Rocky Mountains. But uh, Oh, and Delmarva, of course, Book of Mormon Geography. Yeah, and the cool thing is I've got a boatload of information and graphics from Paul Osborne that I can steal, I can plagiarize like Daniel C. Peterson. Whoa, I could be Daniel C. Peterson Jr. Mm, mm, mm. Use him as my example, right? Geography. And then perhaps Paul Osborne could take the role of Lou Midgley and complain and carp about it all. <laughs> Mormon geography, Delmarva. All right. Yes, I've got that down, Paul. No kidding. See, I've got that down. Book of Mormon Geography, Delmarva. That is a good one. That will be a fun one to do. Porter Rockwell, that's fun too. Oh, folk magic, of course, folk magic. Mark, that's a slash with Mark Hoffman, Doug. Yeah, folk magic. Uh, it would be fun to revisit Mike Quinn. Well, and then you've got, uh, hey, uh, not only Mike Quinn, where did I put him? I had him just a little while ago. Yeah, right here. Hold on. Here I go again, leaving the video. The uh, brook, the refiner's fire. Owen, oh, Lance Owens. Uh, Joseph Smith and the Kabbalah. That's a fun one. And Kabbalah. Uh not so much hermeticism. Hermeticism could have been part of it. Brooks didn't, uh, he didn't persuade half as much as D. Michael Quinn did or Lance Owens. Lance Owens has a bunch of good stuff on the Kabbalah uh, that's pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, I've got, I've also got some real good stuff on the masonry angle of stuff too. So, so, the changing covenants and doctrines. Yeah, changing doctrine. That is a good topic. Changing doctrine and what? Modern day revelation. Yeah. Because they've been able to use the concept of revelation now to always save some kind of an idiotic contradiction or problem or an incorrect understanding and use the Adam God doctrine, for instance. And so modern revelation. Uh, the magic word revelation isn't the magic solving problem issue anymore that it used to be. Part of that's the internet. Uh, what did I just say about modern revelation? Uh, yeah, the Adam God doctrine. Adam God, that's a fun one. Or previous doctrines that have now been thrown under the bus. It's fascinating that Brigham Young did claim that he received that doctrine by revelation. And uh, and yet they the later prophets can say, well, no, it wasn't revelation. It was his opinion. And yet tens of thousands of other people had the Holy Ghost born testimony that it was true. And the modern church doesn't even think about that. The implications of changing the revealed doctrines because of the teaching of the Holy Ghost makes that whole thing a train wreck, doesn't it? When you really stop and think about that, that is seriously problematic. So, 
Beaver Island? I don't even know what contest. How about the Adam Dog Doctrine? That is for dyslexics. Hopefully no one's dyslexic. I'm not trying to make fun of you, I promise. Temple ceremonies is interesting, but you kind of, that's where you begin to offend a lot of people. And I, I'm not into offending people so much on the, as I am in instructing them, but see that brings in the, but thank you, Dean, Dean Schwenk. That's a good idea, but that can tie into, I mean, I can, I can kind of touch on that when we get into Joseph Smith and Freemasonry uh, because of the Masonic connection that most people ignore and they try to use Nibley's ancient Egyptian connection, uh, but they ignore the contemporary middleman, which is pretty much the case of all of apologetics, no matter what. So uh, Joseph Smith, Freemasonry, and the endowment. That would be a fun one. And in fact, this is one of them that Gerardo said he would like to help me prepare and do too, because that always fascinated him. He was taught about that up at BYU, Idaho. Yeah, Brigham Young would be, yeah, Brigham Young, good grief. Oh, tapir rodeos, that would be impressive. I've got videos of those, you know. Yeah, yeah. Snuffer would be interesting. The Brazilian plates, failed revelation, failed prophecies, that would also, yeah, I, that would tie in, that would tie in very easily, actually, with the, well, the succession crisis and Joseph Smith and Kabbalah and mushrooms and Hoffman the folk. I mean, that, <laughs> that ties in with everything, doesn't it? Really, truly. So that's a good one, too. Yeah, John Taylor and government ideas, that's spooky, Mosia, isn't it? Yeah, that's, you kind of go, ooh. Uh, so, lack of revelation in our modern times. Now, that's interesting. Lack of revelation. They, they've gently uh, softened it. You know, they began by saying it's not necessary to say, thus saith the Lord, before every revelation, because, of course, by that time, none of those idiots were having coffee and donuts with Jesus up in the upper rooms of the Salt Lake Temple. He had stopped coming years earlier, and so they had to cover their ass some way. So that's how they began. Now it's moved. Now it's moved from, no, we have not seen Jesus. We testify of his sacred name as if that's significant. <sighs> You know, to them, they think they're really being impressive and profound. And to the rest of us, we're going, uh, yeah, so, and what's the encore? <laughs> you know, lead me, guide me, drop me off at the side of the road, so to speak. What the hell are you guys doing besides making money? So, yeah, 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 that's a good subject. Has any prophet had any revelation on soaking? No, they passed that down to the bishops. They let the bishops take care of that one. Bishops and state presidents. So, uh, let's see how Mormonism changed from anti-government uh, lap to the lapdog of the government. No kidding, right? Yeah, how it became a corporation. That's why they call themselves the Corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ, a business, a tax-free business, a multi-hundred-billion-dollar tax-free business. Yeah. So, 
Snuffer is a Pandora's paradox. Snuffer is a Pandora's paradox, kind of like James Strang, you know. Everybody takes off on Joseph Smith's ideas and keeps producing them. And now the modern Mormons have become so skeptical that they don't even believe the Joseph Smith ways anymore, right? Oh, anybody who claims to translate 116 pages, automatically, false prophet, you know. Crazy stuff, isn't it? Okay, the wealthiest church in the world. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so let's uh, let me review this with you real quick, and I'll put together a next semester time. Maybe we'll do a smorgasbord. Yeah, we'll just do a a, a buffet. We'll do cafeteria Mormonism, just like they are cafeteria historians. They get to pick and choose which facts are truthful and useful. We get to pick which foods to eat. Mark Hoffman and folk magic, DNA and Book of Mormon geography. Man, all of these sound excellent to me. Joseph and mushrooms, Lance Owens, Joseph Smith and Kabbalah, William Law. That's, that's going to be fun. Word of Wisdom, Succession Crisis is good. Book of Mormon Geography, Marva. That could be a hot topic, man. Changing Doctrine, Modern Revelation, Adam God, Joseph Smith, Freemasonry and Endowment, and Lack of Revelation Today. Did I miss anything? Are y'all on board with this? Are you going to keep coming to class and interrupting me by throwing spit wads and stuff? <laughs> I hope so. I love you as an audience. We're having way too much fun. So Brigham Young and racism. Yeah. Yeah, Brigham Young and racism is tough. Yeah. I'm going to write that down. Brigham Young racism. That's a that's a pretty important social issue. These Well, and then we can talk about the uh, gospel topic essays. Uh, the polygamy, the stuff on polygamy. Spitwad's incoming. Ooh, duck, duck. Just don't throw bananas and rocks, okay? Spitwads I can handle. Rocks, I don't know so much. It might break my screen if you chuck a rock at me. So, when did truth become dangerous? Oh, that's an interesting question. When did truth become dangerous? You know what? That's good. When did? You mean in Mormonism or in general? Because <laughs> that can apply to society. When did truth become dangerous? And then the problem is if I start politicizing stuff, I lose half my audience and the other half gets mad and then I get a new audience and they either love you or hate you. And all. I mean, that, that can get real tricky. That's the problem. We're talking about modern social issues. You almost just don't dare. Of course, and I'm not supposed to on the Mormon Discussion Inc. anyway. We're going to keep this to Mormonism. Of course, then you can get into Mormonism and politics and all. I, I really, yeah, I'm not going to go there. We're going to stick with... You know, unfortunately, there's plenty to do with the scriptures and with revelation and, you know, how Bednar acts like he's Jesus Christ's younger twin and stuff like that. Maybe I could do one on Jeffrey Holland and Bed. I'll tell you what I am going to do is I am going to start reviewing the general conferences. That can be a lot of fun and that can be seriously instructive as well. So that would be great to do. Well, that's true. Mosia, truth can always be dangerous. Depends where you're sitting. 
right? The three degrees of heaven. Oh, yeah. Mark Twain and other people's observation of Mormonism through the 19th century. That could be fun, too. Or we can talk about, uh, yeah, let's see. Where is it in LDS scripture that Jesus had four wives? Dean Schwank, that's not in LDS scripture. I know Orson Hyde speculated about that in the journal of discourses, the marriage of Jesus. And uh, in some early Christian context, that's a foregone conclusion. You get into the Gnostics and Mary Magdalene and all. That might be kind of fun too. The historical Jesus compared to Joseph Smith's Jesus. That might be interesting. Uh, that could be a, a fun one. So anyway, yeah, Jesus and polygamy. Yeah, I've, I have a couple of books on that. And it just, you know, they just Mormonize, interpret the Bible so bad that you just can't, you know. That's where knowing the Greek and Hebrew helps save your stupid exegesis that's really eisegesis. You're just reading stuff into the, uh, the King Follett sermon is quite fun. You know what? The King Follett sermon, that is a fun one. King Follett sermon. There's still quite a bit to, to get out of that uh, in unconventional ways. Of course, then they, they tried to change it and suppress stuff and change things around and all that. The idea of intelligence is, hey, I could do a review of the book that absolutely finished breaking my shelf, Thomas Riscus, Deconstructing Mormonism. That would be interesting. He's got some fabulous chapters in there on some of the problematic uh, modern Mormons attempts to overcome the difficult questions through uh, a process of psychological denial that is really interesting. That's, that's kind of fun stuff. Minutes of the Council of 50, that could be interesting. Okay. Mormon astronomy. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's a fun subject. Eric Robert Paul. He died shortly after writing this book. I didn't know about that until years later. That was very sad. Uh, Science, religion, and Mormon cosmology. He really did a fantastic study on that. That's fun stuff. Ties in Book of Abraham cosmology a little bit. That's fun stuff. And then we can talk about the uh, Asherah and Heavenly Mother. If anyone's interested in the Heavenly Mother concept, that's always a... I have uh, uh, Maxine Hanks' book, Women and Authority. Uh, yeah, Women and Authority, the one that got her excommunicated by Boyd. I don't have a clue, Packer. I've got that book right here. And uh, this is the one where D. Michael Quinn showed how the women do have the priesthood already. And he didn't mean just through temple ordinances. He means they had the priesthood. And this this stuff is pretty controversial. Uh, but it's really good. Maxine did a great job editing that. I haven't been able to ask her about her thoughts on it now, but she did give me the book. So, Who was the very first God? Hey, Thomas Riscus talks about that. I That was actually one of my very first videos when I came under the Mormon Discussion Inc. umbrella, is I talked about the idea of the logical problem with the, the concept of the first God. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, and then we could talk about infinity and the problems that infinity causes with the infinite regress and the loops of the Mormon deity and all that. That's some fun junk. Yeah.
all the names Joseph Smith made up and where he may have got them and why they're all hokey. That is all, Teresa Pittman. That's quite a concept too. Mike Langley said, uh, no, don't talk about Heavenly Mother. The prophet said, no, don't talk about Heavenly Mother. Yeah, the prophet's a spineless coward, in my opinion. Don't talk about Heavenly Mother. She's the most important, prominent deity in the entire ancient world. If Joseph Smith had a correct restoration of an actual God head, Heavenly Mother would be being prayed to all the time. But the patriarchy doesn't grasp that fact. But that's me getting rebellious. I love the concept. I love the doctrine. I love the idea. But, you know, you can believe anything you want, Elder Shirts, in this church. Just don't talk about it. Right. So, you know, <sighs> such is Mormonism. Is the very first God the boss God? The other question is, is there such a thing as the very first God? Eh, that'll make you think, won't it? And what the hell is perfect? That can be a profound philosophical discussion, can't it? Yeah. What the hell is perfection? <laughs> yeah. Hey, we can talk about Daniel C. Peterson's favorite book. Uh, what was the name of that one? He talked about it on the message boards. Paul, do you remember what that was? It was the Anderson book. Oh, added upon. We can review that and why we think that Dan Peterson thinks that's such a profound, true, hopeful account of the next life. And it's just about as damn racist and misogynist against women as can possibly be. So, of course, the patriarchal priesthood, Melchizedek priesthood, Toten men, Midgley, Lou Midgley and Dan Peterson's going to love that. But anyway. No, I am not being misogynist. I am mocking the Mormon patriarch's misogyny. I was actually accused of being a misogynist in the comments on my Mormon stories video, and that just positively blew my mind. I thought, what? I'm misogynist? Wow. I'm the one that defends Heavenly Mother more than anybody else out there, I thought. So anyway. Okay. Out of the pond, the breakdown would be cool. I, I agree, Mosiah. Mosiah. <laughs> clever. That's very clever. Uh, backdated priesthood restoration. Yeah, watch his nose. The CS director was big on that. The gentleman just recently died. Oh, got another brain fart. What was his name? Very popular man. Anyway, yeah, he, he actually... Oh, who... Jeremy Runnels, we can review some of his stuff on his website too. And Mormon Think is another one that really does deep dives into stuff. He's pretty good. We've got some philosophers on our message boards that do deep dives that just leave you reeling, man. They're awesome. And then we can talk about the idea of spirituality. Where did spirituality go? Where did it disappear in Mormonism? They've redefined it and made it so that it's just, it's almost so hokey and mamby-pamby and milk only in the glass that there's nothing spiritual there anymore. And yet they try to tell you it's totally spiritual and it's just not. So, uh, Let's see, we can do the Isaiah prophecies. I'm kidding. <laughs> the Nephilim, that might be interesting. Hey, the Nephilim, that actually might be interesting. 
on the book of Enoch and what it's really about. Hey, Nibley's parallels with the book of Enoch because of his Mormon apologetic. Uh, that was fascinating how he Mormonized that. And I realized that as an apologist because I got to know a couple of the Enoch scholars and they were saying, yeah, this is clever, but that's not what the book of Enoch is saying. And so I went and bought, you know, the Hebrew and the Greek and the Slavonic Enoch and all the texts and all that jazz translations and did a big study on it there for a while. So I wasn't overly impressed with Nibley at that point anyway, but yeah, his stuff on Enoch isn't nearly as good as the Mormons love to imagine. So. All right. Hmm. Well, that's a good question, too. Did spirituality ever exist in Mormonism at all? That's a great question. <laughs> I'll kick all the tires. Good job, Patty Cake. Oh, you're a clever girl tonight, aren't you? You always have those cool little witty sayings. That's kind of fun. All you guys do that, though, man. Why is faith considered a virtue? That, Teresa Pittman, that why is faith, I will talk on that, considered a virtue? Yeah, that is a great question. And Thomas Riscus has some very powerful information on that. Yeah, that's what helped me. So does, uh, oh, who's the, uh, who's the atheist guy that did the, uh, did the outsider test? John Loftus. John Loftus, the outsider test of faith. If you've never read that book, man, you've got to read it. Hey, uh, one of my, patrons here asked me to do a book review. Maybe I can do some book reviews on, uh, on, uh, oh, what John Loftus, man, he's got some good stuff too. More of a, more of an anti-Christian atheist approach, but some of his, uh, some of his information on the, uh, his anti-Christian really does have a wedge into Mormonism because, you know, Mormonism loves to imagine it's just Christianity on steroids. So there is that. Faith without works. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The BYP book club. Yeah, we can do that too. Yeah, I could, I could do some book reviews. I, I would love to hear some book reviews. Okay, uh, I will do book reviews. And, and the cool thing is, in my library, in case you've never noticed it before, I have more than one subject in my library. So I can do book reviews on several different subjects. I've got my science and philosophy and atheist section over there. And I've got my Hebrew, Greek, Arabic, German, lexicons, Latin, and all that over there. And I've got my chess channels, my chess stuff. I've got my math books. I've got all my mysticism and spirituality over there. I've got New Testament exegesis and translation in Greek over here. Then I've got some really cool, crazy crap over here with New Testament and archaeology. Then the Mormonism's behind me mixed in. And then I've got uh, some math and science up that way, some ancient history, some modern history, some modern Mormon apologetics. And then I've got, oh, I've got a whole bunch of books on infinity. That topic always fascinated me. The philosophy of the infinite, the math of the infinite. 
why it obeys different rules than the finite and all that. And then I've got stuff on etymology and word origins and all that. And then I've got stuff on nihilism, trigonometry, and info. oh, and then I've got the historical Jesus. And this whole boy, I'll tell you what, Dennis McDonald on the uh, Homeric uh, influence on the Gospels, that's a magnificent topic. He's going to be coming out with some new stuff. Uh, soon that's good luke and virgil and the christianizing of homer and the gospels and homer that's some fun crap man and then i've got uh the intertextual jesus whole bunch of stuff on the jesus myth and the historical jesus and excavate john dominique croissant and dale allison jr and brody and all of those guys man and I got a whole bunch of crap on the Dead Sea Scrolls and more on Jesus and more on, oh, the Great Mother, the Gnostics. I got a whole, oh boy, I've, oh, I've got a whole section on the Gnostics, stuff on the Messiah, Bishop Shelby Spong, the Gnostics and the Maasins, Indian Origins in the Book of Mormon. I'll bet Dan Vogel's never heard of that book. Boy, I've got him in with the Gnostics. That's odd, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, baby. Anyway, yeah, and this is just my basement part of my library. I've got stuff upstairs too. Oh, I've got a whole table for, oh, mythology. My mythology section is mostly over there. Oh, and then my Greek interlinears and ancient Greece. I mean, there's tons of stuff, man. Yeah, the backyard book reviews. I will start doing some book reviews. That will be fun. Who in the 12 could beat you in chess? I, I have no idea. I'd have to play them all. That'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? I'll bet half of them don't even know how to spell the word. I look forward to discussing it. Yeah, yeah, Teresa. I do too. A, a patty cake, if you'll bring the shrimp, we'll eat it. <laughs> we'll have a shrimp dig, baby. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, well, it would have. That's why they kept polygamy a secret. Of course, that's why they kept becoming kings a secret, you know. That's why they kept the Joseph Smith papyri from us for 50 years. But in a way, that's good because the photography technology upgraded and then it became excellent to photograph it. And now we have that benefit. So in a way, it was good. Randy Jordan, you're here. Welcome. Good to see you, my friend. Uh, A.W. Joseph Smith denied polygamy because it was against the law of the land and of the church. Duh. Yeah, right. Randy Jordan. I just want to introduce you guys to Randy Jordan. Randy, welcome to the chat. Randy Jordan was my nemesis when I was an apologist, and I never could beat him. He's the one that told me once on the phone, he said, uh, you know why we always beat you, shirts? I said, no, I never could figure that out. And he said, because we always quoted Joseph Smith back at you. I go, what the hell? How's that work? And he said, you guys, you apologists don't defend Joseph Smith. You're, you're defending modern Mormonism. Joseph Smith can't be defended. That's why we always quote Joseph Smith to you apologists. And now Paul Osborne and I have taken that up and it works. So thank you, Randy Jordan. Welcome to the club, dude. Good to see you. Historical Jesus would be a whole semester. Yes, Doug, it would, but it would be fun. Now, I promise, uh, when we start talking about Jesus, the historical Jesus, etc., I so promise this won't be the Sunday school milk toast Mormonized version of Jesus. 
that would be fun to do. I would like to do that. The the uh, the Greek and the the uh, comparison of gospels. You know, we have over forty early Christian gospels and the Jewish interpretation of Jesus, etc. I mean, and then you have the Zohar version of of all this stuff. I, there's some good stuff, man, on the historical Jesus. I'm going to write that down. That would be fun to do. It it really would. I could intermix it with book reviews. I mean, if you guys are interested in that kind of stuff, I promise I wouldn't give you Pat Pablum fluff and milk. It would be really good. Yeah, thank you, Mike Weiss, for welcoming Randy. I like Randy. Paul Osborne Mosia. Yeah, yeah, Randy Jordan's awesome. It's amazing, isn't it, Randy? 25 years later, and here we are. <laughs> Would you have ever, you know, if if you'd have told me back then, Carrie, I prophesy someday you'll be on my side. You'll be making videos showing the real reality of the Mormon apologetic stupidity and the mess of the scriptures. I would have laughed at you for decades. In fact, I probably did. But here we are, man. I finally got around to looking at the evidence and you're a part of it. So way to go. Yes. Not nose kid. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I can get away with that. You can't hit me. Ooh, chuck and jab. Come on. Come on. You don't want to. Come on. Bring it up. Come Come get it back up, Professor. Anyway, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay, chin up, Carrie. I'm sure you can beat me at chess. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not that good. All right. Jesus, international man of mystery. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. I got to do that. Hey, we are actually, I think on Mormon Discussions, Inc., we're working on getting a Backyard Professor t-shirt. Yeah, man. <laughs> you know, I'm the only idiot in the whole world that can get away with doing stupid shenanigans like that. But everybody likes it, so what the heck. Yeah, the, thank you, Devorah. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you saying that. Historic Jesus and book reviews would be great. It really would. It would be fun because we could get the uh, CR advantage on this. I'm not kidding you guys. Uh, you can kind of get the, you can kind of play the Mormon side off of things and how they have changed the history or manipulated the history through the Book of Mormon version of Jesus and then the Christian side and how it too has manipulated the history. And you can compare and cross-check and cross-reference the historic Jesus with the mythic Jesus, with the doctrinal Jesus. I, and there's a whole bunch of ways we could approach that. That, that could be really cool. BYP, Dennis Peterson was huge in my conversion. Yeah, Dean Schwenk, I'll bet he was. Yeah, he, he's okay. Uh, he was actually huge in my deconversion because once I began looking at the evidence, I saw that he was a paid apologist and he has to manipulate stuff and leave stuff out. And John Gee is even a worse offender than that with the evidence. They can't just let the historic evidences take you to the logical conclusion. They must fudge. And that's unfortunate, but that, that's how they do it. I've got plenty of evidence on that. So, But no, I mean, everybody, everybody on their own, you know, Whatever keeps you happy and all. I'm not trying to insult you or anything like that. I don't mean anything like that. So, but yeah, uh, Truman G. Madsen was kind of a, he threw a potential philosophical career down the drain to chase after Joseph Smith and try to lionize him and make him into a myth. 
uh, his historical analysis of Joseph Smith isn't very realistic, but he was fun to read. I, I enjoyed Truman Manson. He was a good guy. Uh, so anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Randy, you weren't sure if I'd leave it, but you were sure you wouldn't return to it. Yeah, I know. I get it. Yeah, it is crazy. Okay, yeah, yeah, I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you, Teresa Pittman. She's starting to leave. Thank you, everyone, for showing up and coming and talking uh, and sharing your ideas with me. You've given me plenty to think about. I'm honestly not sure what I'm going to do next week, but I will be here every week, Sunday night, 6 o'clock. Oh, thank you, Anonymous. That's very, very kind of you. I do appreciate that. Very kind. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna head out to you guys. Love y'all. You guys are great. Wouldn't trade your friend. Anybody else in the whole world? Um, Mike Weiss, thank you. Thank you, Doug Vincent. It was a fun show. Uh, Huff Daddy, all of you, everyone. I can't keep naming y'all because I'll miss some and I don't want to offend any of you, but you're all great. I will see you next. Sunday night, 6 p.m., or else Wednesday night on Mormonism Live. Or I'll see you over there on Mormon Stories. Oh, thank you, Mosia. That's that's very kind of you for the donation. I appreciate that. Mike Ray, good to see you, my friend. Dan Bogle, you're very welcome. As always, thank you, Huff Daddy. Very enjoyable. Thank you. It's been enjoyable being with you guys, too. My pleasure. Lots more to come. I promise. Okay, so this is me closing out. Be good, do well, have fun, work hard, sleep nice, and I'll see you next week at the Backyard Professor Sunday Firesides. I may do a book review for you just to <laughs> throw one in there. That'd be fun. So, okay, everybody be safe, and I will catch up to you in a week. I'm going to go now. I better ski daddle. Appreciate y'all. All right.